First of all, pride. So I want to tell you a story. I, I've struggled with pride a lot in my life, mostly because I'm a musician. So if you get a group of musicians together in a room, it's probably the most ego you'll be able to handle, like, period. Like, it's just sort of inherent with being a musician. You have this, like, ego thing going on. Um, more than that, when I was a kid, at, like, 15 and 16, I was signed to a production deal with the band that I had. So I was a part of something much bigger than myself, but at 15 and 16, you don't recognize any of that grandiosity. You just think, like, well, this is all happening because of me. <laughs> so when you're a 15-year-old kid and you're signed to this thing and you're playing in front of a lot of people, it begins to mess with your head. And I've done a lot of work in my life to try and revert or get rid of some of the thought processes that I have as a result of those years. So I'll talk with my buddy Daniel, who played bass in this band with me, and he'll share with me about how unfair that kind of upbringing was and how he wished he was just bad at sports because that way he wouldn't have to deal with like, all the craziness that we have to deal with. He now works for The Gap, and he does analysis for them. Uh, Conrad, who is the drummer for this rock and roll band, now works in organic dairy farming, and I'm a pastor. So none of that looks like what we thought it would at age 15 and 16. But Daniel often jokes that like, he, he still thinks that like, when he hands in the expense report or when he walks into the office there should be applause, because that's naturally what we grew up with in this band, and it warped our personalities in a little bit of a way. And you see, that, that's the problem with pride, is that it deals in absolutes. So if we're prideful, that means that we're defining ourselves by the successes that we have or the successes that we don't have. There's no in-between. We're saying, I am this because I've done this, or I am this because I'm currently doing this. This is when we, we greet each other, and I hate this question, where people are like, what do you do? Because then it just becomes, oh, I'm going to define you and categorize you in this way for the rest of our conversation, like it or not. Um, so this is going to be our, our key line uh, for the day. And that's pride is an irresponsible, uh, irresponsible response to a gift given by God. So pride is an irresponsible response to a gift given by God. And nowhere is that more apparent than the city that we sit in right now. So there are professional, good-looking people. There might even be some professional, good-looking people amongst us, and we call them models, and I recognize there's a lot of work that goes into that, but we have to also recognize the heavy gifting at the front end, right? And the same with music. There's a lot of work that goes into that, but there's a gift at the front end. And the same that anything we do, there's a gift that's given to us, and that's nurtured, but we have to acknowledge the gift. So when pride enters the scene, we begin to take God out of the equation and take credit for what was never our fault in the first place. So pride is actually misplaced gratitude. Pride is misplaced gratitude. And the key is found in how Jesus lives. And there's nothing boastful about the character of Jesus. His whole deal was that he came down here to serve and not be served. So if the whole deal behind the person that we are following is to serve then we should probably do it, be doing a little bit of that. So now, when, when in church, and the pastor gets up and they start talking about service, here's most often what I see coming. Uh, there's going to be a big missions trip that we're trying to fund, or I really need volunteers in the kids' ministry. And while I do need volunteers in the kids' ministry, <laughs> so get on it, uh, that's not what this is about. I'm calling us to something a little more dangerous and a little more intense, and that is that we should not just be thinking about service as a program in a church or something we do on a Saturday, but service should actually be a huge posture in which we live our lives. So service is not something that we do just on a Saturday morning. It is a posture in which 
we, we run our whole lives with. And that's exactly what we see in the life of Jesus. Most of the time in churches, we, we fund big mission trips, and most of that is so that we can get an experience out of that. A lot of it is because there's a lot of good to be done, and I'm not knocking that, but I'm saying that a lot of it is like, let's raise support so that we can go somewhere and have an experience. And that's valid, and we need that. But that doesn't always translate into the lifelong posture of service. So if we're living in this, in this practice of service, then the mission trips and the serving in our community and the stuff that we do here at church is an overflow of that. But the service component is not the source. Jesus is, right? So I have this pastor friend who does a lot of ministry in Africa, and he's got this big missions thing, and they go down to Africa every year. He goes several times a year, but the, then churches will plan trips to go once a year to Uganda and, and go and help out there. And he has this amazingly tragic story. Uh, when he went down there with a missions trip, he brought like a group of 14 Americans into Uganda, and they were gonna help at this local church. So they were gonna like, you know, be painting walls and, and doing whatever the community sort of needed, but they were gonna listen to the needs of that community and come down and say, well, how can we be helpful? And they were gonna hang with the kids, and they were gonna teach like classes and all really good things. But he gets down there and he sees that there's a playground. And the playground looks like at one point, this was a very nice like, like playground. Like it, it looked relatively new, but it was overgrown with grass. And so he asked the local pastor there, he goes, hey, should we be working on this playground? Because this thing looks pretty, like, dilapidated. And the local pastor just sort of smiled and politely said, no, thank you. And so he kind of pressed him because he was like, I'm, I'm not understanding. What, what is it about this play structure that, that we shouldn't be fixing? And the local pastor said that the group that came a year before them came down and told them that they were gonna build this play structure. But the thing is, the kids in that neighborhood had never seen anything like that. And so just on the basis that they were scared of it, the thing never got used. And just a year to the date that when it was built, this expensive, nice new play structure, it was falling apart from misuse. And the pastor looked at him and he goes, what we really needed was a well. And then he went on to describe how the prices are shockingly similar. <laughs> so this big shiny play structure that the American crew comes in and says, we're going to build this, and a well, which the community really asked, was said, this is what we really need, were relatively similar in price. And one would have served that community. See, that pride thing is sneaky, because even as the church, we can walk into a certain situation and think we have all the answers and think we've got it all together when we're not listening. Because pride doesn't listen, but service does. So how do we listen? And, and for me, this is where we get to the life of Jesus. This is a guy that we all follow, and I would argue that he listened his entire life. He would show up to a situation, and he would listen to the needs of the people, and he would meet them at their need and then proclaim the good news. So if we see any story of Jesus, oftentimes it's not him like preaching in the temple, but it is him going to a sick person, figuring out what the illness was, healing that person of their sickness, and then presenting the good news. Then saying, repent, go live your life. But there was a healing on the front end. There was a listening on the front end. So I, I really believe that when, when I thought about this idea of pride and then this idea of service, I was like, there's no better test kitchen for this stuff than the city of Los Angeles. Because 
being from Northern California, when I moved down here, I was warned like, oh, you're going to that land of all the movie stars and, and the plastic people and all that good stuff. Once you get down here, you realize like that's a lot of, there's, there's hype to that. And then there's some stuff that's very, very real. But we do, as a city, suffer from pride. And not in the way that you think right now. It's not necessarily the movie star and the glitzy and the plasticness. I'm going to present to us another way. Um, we have that traffic slide. There we go. So we all recognize these freeways, correct? Some of us spend a lot of time upon them. So when I moved down here from Northern California, I took a job in Calabasas, and I was going to school in Hollywood, and I decided I would live in Hollywood because when I Google mapped it, or map quested it at the time, throwback, uh, when I map quested it at the time, it said 15 miles. So in my Northern California sense, living in Marin County, where there are more people on any given freeway during the day than there are in the entirety of Marin County, um, I looked at it and said, 15 miles, that can't possibly be that bad. Like, I could probably do that if traffic, and I'd heard legend of this traffic, I could probably do that in like 45, 30 minutes. That is not accurate, as I learned very, very quickly. So I moved down and I got to know the 101 very, very intimately. And the 101, the 101 and I would spend um, probably about an hour and an hour and a half a day together, just going there and back, and sometimes just going there. And if you're like me and you've been stuck in awful traffic before, you begin to realize, like, it, there's, a, there's a voice in my brain, and you guys may have this too, that starts piping up and it starts trying to solve the problem, even though I'm in a car listening to a podcast, and there's no way I'm gonna solve this problem for the whole world. It's not like I can just tweet it out and then you know, the city's gonna get on it. But ha like, harebrained schemes, like I thought, you know, the traffic is literally just a group of people who are too scared to move faster. So there was that. Like, if we could all just hit the gas, we'd be okay. Uh, there was, maybe it was the position of the sun. So I would notice when I'd be, like, driving by and just in maddening traffic, I'd notice that the sun was dipping down. And maybe it was because it was hitting the windshield in a certain way. And certain people that were not supposed to be on the road anyway are slowing down because the sun is in their face. Or maybe it's just that there are too many people in this city in general. And all of that is probably true in some way. But it wasn't until I met an urban, uh, what's his name? An urban, what was an urban planner? It's an urban engineer. And so we're at a party together, and I started asking this guy questions about traffic, because it was his job to figure out how to make this better in this city. And I was like, that's a really big job. Turns out there's a lot of people working on this. I don't really know what they're doing, but um, there's a lot of people working on this. So I asked him what it was, and I shared with him my harebrained schemes. And he said, yeah, like all of those attribute to traffic a little bit, but he's like, actually, the number one thing that attributes to traffic is selfish driving. And so I pressed him on that a little bit. And he said that every time we change lanes, because we realize that the lane over might be going a little bit faster, we are slowing down the car in back of us. And then we are, we are putting ourselves at greater risk for an accident, which causes traffic overall. So selfish driving, the me to get ahead, is actually what attributes to the worst amount of traffic. He said if everyone would just commit to staying in their lane once they figure out that they're on the freeway, then the traffic problem would not be as severe. And I think that's a profound illustration of what it's like to walk through life. Because when we try and cut people off and cut things off and take shortcuts and get in front of people, and, and honestly, it's, it's a fair thing to say because that's what really what we're taught. Like in school, we are taught that we need to get ahead. And there's subtle social cues, especially being an American, where we're, we're sort of like, well, I've got to get mine, right? When, if we use this picture of traffic 
as our picture of how we can walk through life by staying in a lane and committing to something and helping those around us, everybody benefits, which is really crazy. Just on the practical level, if you leave here with nothing else, please stop changing lanes. <laughs> um, let me go to the scripture, because uh, I think this, this illustrates it perfectly. This is Mark 9, 33 through 37. And this is a perfect picture of how we're called to live for something different. We're called into this upside-down economy of love. So we're going to have it on the screen behind us. If you want to look it up, it is Mark 9, 33 through 37. So it says, They enter Capernaum, and when they had come into a house, he asked them, What were you arguing about during the journey? They didn't respond, since on the way they had been debating with each other about who was the greatest. So he sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, Whoever wants to be first must be least, must be least of all and the servant of all. Jesus reached for a little child, placed him among the twelve, and embraced him. Then he said, Whoever welcomes one of these children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me isn't actually welcoming me, but the one who sent me. So let's just look at this picture here for a minute. We have the disciples and we have Jesus. They're obviously in some sort of a crowd because Jesus is able to produce a child, which is, you know, pretty miraculous if they're not in a crowd. Um, They're walking together. And I I always like to harp on the relationship between the disciples and Jesus because this is an ancient sort of bond that we don't get a lot of. Um, If you were a disciple of a rabbi, so Jesus wasn't the only one with disciples. He was obviously a lot different than every other rabbi. But if you, were, if you decided to live your life as a disciple of a rabbi, that meant that you would quit your job, you would quit all that you had, you would leave your family, and you would go specifically to follow this rabbi and listen to every word he had to say because your livelihood depended on it after that rabbi was gone. So this is actually like an apprenticeship model. They would follow this person around, and then after that rabbi had either passed on or, or sent you off, you would then have your own ministry and hopefully have your own disciples, and you would bring your yoke, which was your message. So when Jesus says, my, my yoke is light, that's his message, his, his whole teaching. So you would, you would learn the teaching of this rabbi, you would tweak it to be your own through prayer and through everything else, and then you would take it out into the community. So that's a really cool model for church, if you think about it. Because you have all of these dedicated leaders pouring their lives into things, learning as best they can, and then taking it out and sharing it. So if you were a disciple of Jesus, at this point, as they're walking down the road, you've spent more time with Jesus than probably anybody else. You've eaten meals together. You've, you've um, walked down long desert roads together. You've chatted. You've talked. You've cried. You've laughed. You know this person inside and out. And what's really interesting, and just the mental picture here, if we picture the disciples walking and it says Jesus is just a little bit ahead, as soon as Jesus gets just a little bit ahead, what do they start doing? They start arguing with each other about who's the best disciple. So Jesus steps out of the circle, and then all of a sudden, the people who know him best, the people who are taking his teachings and supposed to be taking them into the masses later, are arguing about who's going to do that the best. And that is exactly how we're sort of taught to live our lives. Because even if you go, anybody, anybody been camping with people that I don't know? I know it's a weird thing, but I've been camping with people you don't know. As soon as you get in there, 
camping, or maybe it's like your first day of school. As soon as you get in there, you begin to size people up, like, okay, that's the funny guy. I can't be the funny guy. <laughs> that's sort of the alpha guy. That's not me. That's sort of the cook guy. He's already got that responsibility. Can't do that. Oh, I'll be the tent guy. You know, so you're, you categorize yourself instantly. And what these disciples are doing is they're categorizing themselves. So they're probably looking at Peter and they're going, well, you're the most outspoken. So, I mean, maybe he's the great. No, I'm the greatest because of this. So they're literally talking about how they're going to do ministry and how they're going to be better than each other. And Jesus turns around once they get to their destination, probably having heard all the arguments, and basically just looks them down and he goes, so what were you guys talking about on that uh, ride in? <laughs> and then there's this hush over the mall, it says they go quiet, because they just realized in that moment, it's sort of like when you got caught doing something bad as a kid, like, you realize, like, oh, shoot, like, that doesn't work here. That's not okay here. And the feeling these disciples have is, oh, that's right. In this reality, in this kingdom, that this son of God that we're following around has come to proclaim, there is no greater there is no greatest, there is no least, there's just us. And we're all here trying to accomplish good, trying to bring this kingdom into the world, trying to proclaim the good news to everyone. So then Jesus says something even cooler. So after, after they kind of realize, oh, I've done something wrong, I don't have it right, Jesus goes to the crowd and he takes a child out. So there's a lot in this picture to unpack. A child, just naturally and very obviously, is dependent upon other people. So a child can't do things on its own. It's, it's weaker than an adult. It's, it, it needs nourishment. It needs to be fed. It, it needs to rely on the goodness of others for it to thrive. So when Jesus takes this person out and he says, if you welcome people like this, if you take the low posture, that's when you've got it right. When we are for these children, the people who are dependent, the people who really need us, when we help them, we're not just helping them, they're helping us. Because you really cannot be prideful and help a child. It's messy. There's, there's boogers involved. Like there, There's a lot of stuff going on there. To help a child, it's not like that child is going to just go like, thank you so much, and let me tell you why I'm thanking you here, because you really did something great for me. No, it's like this unsaid, like, can you pick me up and put me there? Okay, cool, boom, off you go. There's no reward, right? The other deeper ancient context of this, which I think is amazing, is that when Jesus pulls out a child, he's doing something really, really, really significant in this first century Judean culture. Now, when they would take a census back then, when they wanted to figure out how many people we're living in a given area or how many people have this demographic, and the, the Romans were incredibly good at this, they would go to a Jewish town and they would only count the Jewish men living in the village. So if we hear that like 3,000 people are in this village, more importantly, even in the Bible, like when it says Jesus feeds like 5,000, we don't really know how many people were there because all they were counting were the men. So when the Romans would come in, they would do a census, they would count just the men in any given village. So that sends a subtle and not so subtle message that if you are a female or you are a child, you literally don't count. In the society that they were living in, they were not given even a number. So they were the uncounted ones. They did not count in this sort of reality. And so what Jesus says when he pulls this person out 
as he says, we're supposed to take on the posture of those who do not count. In this new kingdom that I am coming to proclaim, in this beautiful new reality, we get to look at this child and say it counts. We get to look at everybody and say that they count. And when we do that, pride has no space, no air to breathe. It goes away, and we are left with a servant's heart, the way that Jesus really, really, really wanted us to leave. So practically, outside of this place, we're going to go and we're going to hang out. But as we leave today, I'm not calling us to a big service project. I'm not calling us to volunteer. I'm not calling us to these different things. But I am calling us to take on a posture of servanthood in our lives, which is a big, big ask but it is a significantly easier ask when we do that through the lens of Jesus. Because it's an overflow. All the stuff we're going through and it's practicing the way of Jesus, all of the practices are not like these secret tips to get closer to Jesus. What they are is an overflow of relationship with Jesus. So I'm not speaking on these things so that we can insert them into our lives like helpful little hints to get us farther. What I'm doing is saying that like in your relationship with Christ, you're going to like notice these practices come up, you're going to notice these sort of, these things like joy and celebration and service and prayer and fasting. These things are going to begin to come out of you, and we need a framework to put them in so that we can put them to the best use, and that is best done in community, together, so that we can walk through it together and get through it together. So I'm going to pray. Andrew's going to come up, lead us in one last song. While we do that, we're going to take our offering, so if you guys want to get that ready, that would be sweet. Um, and uh, yeah, afterwards, we have pastries. Uh, Lorene brought us pastries, so thank you so much, Lorene. And I'm calling them elevated donuts. So if you prefer the donut, take the donut. But we got some pretty awesome pastries in there. Um, let me pray. Lord, I am just so grateful that uh, we get a space where we get to talk through these things together. And that we get to do that in community. We get to experience these practices, these rhythms to a life lived well with you, Lord. Um, let's pray as we, as we sing this next song. This has a lot of language about the church. has a lot of language about who we are as the body. And I pray that we lean into that language. And even if we're not singers, Lord, would you just like let us experience you in this beautiful language and the beautiful song. And afterwards, help us to just leave slowly as we go and we hang out. Lord, thank you. Amen.